Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films, and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. 
just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me sitting here in Los Angeles. This is you, wherever you are. Thank you for tuning in. It's good to be here. It's good to have Jerry Stahl on today's program. He is the author of several books, including the memoir Permanent Midnight, which was made into a movie starring Ben Stiller. So you may be familiar with that. He's also written the novel I Fatty uh, about Fatty Arbuckle and another novel called Painkillers about Nazi war criminal Dr. Joseph Mengele. I believe that's how you pronounce it. So uh, Jerry's been around uh, the block. He's written a lot of stuff. He's done a lot of things in film, in television, and in literature. And uh, most recently, he co-authored with Barbara Turner uh, the screenplay for Hemingway and Gellhorn, which is the film about the love affair between Ernest Hemingway uh, and his third wife, the famous and highly decorated war correspondent Martha Gellhorn, uh, which is now on HBO. So there's plenty to talk about here, and Jerry and I are going to be getting into it in just a moment. Uh, Before we get started... I thought I would just, uh, you know, tell you what has been happening around here. Uh, yesterday, uh, something miserable happened. And I know that I usually try to keep these, uh, you know, the, you know, try to keep things light in these opening monologues. And hopefully I'm not going to get too dark or uh, emotional here. But the truth is that some heavy shit happened yesterday. And I can't stop thinking about it. And it sort of feels weird uh, in light of it to talk about anything else today. So... Uh, basically, uh, here's the short version. Uh, I was sitting here yesterday working and, uh, it's about 11 in the morning and I get a phone call from my daughter's babysitter and I pick up and, uh, on the other, you know, the other end of the line, uh, it actually wasn't my daughter's babysitter. It was another babysitter. It was a friend of my daughter's sitter and her name is Julie. And so I say hello and Julie says, uh, Brad, this is Julie. Please come to the library quick. Uh, Evan's not breathing. And uh, my daughter's name is Evan. So, uh, as you can imagine, uh, I was immediately sent into a state of terrible panic. And I, I, you know, I think I probably said, what, like, are you serious? Like, and then very quickly, uh, I hung up the phone, uh, and I got up and I started running and, uh, I made my way out of the apartment. I don't remember much of this. It's like all very spotty. Um, but I remember running out of the building. I remember jumping flights of steps on my way out of my building. And I remember getting out into the street. Uh, it was a bright, sunny day in Los Angeles. And I remember it being in such a dry panic and having so much adrenaline running through my body that I, I had trouble running. And that's really odd because you think, you know, you have adrenaline. Uh, you hear these stories about people performing these like superhuman feats, uh, you know, where they're able to lift incredible amounts of weight or whatever. Well, I I think sometimes too, adrenaline can be debilitating, like when you have it in that kind of abundance. And so I found myself short of breath and I'm running, uh, you know, up my street, slightly uphill. And it was almost like, I felt like I was almost on a conveyor belt or something, you know, so I wasn't running and making progress. And then, you know, in retrospect, uh, it was this odd thing where I think I was so terrified of arriving at where I was going that I almost didn't want to get there. It was like my body was shutting down because I didn't want to get there. I didn't want to run there. So that was odd. And, uh, you know, I did keep running and I, God only knows what I looked like. I was like running down sunset Boulevard in a terrible state. And uh, I get to the library and, uh, I go inside. And what was odd is that, uh, it was like a normal library situation. Like people were sitting at tables, people were reading, there was a little kids group, 
I couldn't really see. I, I expected chaos when I got there, and it looked like a regular library. And then ahead, uh, I saw my daughter's sitter. Uh, her name is Sylvia. She was standing there, and she was holding uh, Evan, my daughter, and Evan was limp. Uh, and, uh, you know, but she was awake, and she was just, uh, like, it was almost like she had just fainted. So it was good that she was awake. And I ran up to her, and they had called 911, and the ambulance and the fire truck arrived, like, you know, seconds later. So I, I take Evan, and I sort of run her outside, and the paramedics were great. Uh, kudos to the Los Angeles paramedics, but they, they checked her out. And basically what happened is that she had a febrile seizure. And uh, it's, it's it, I don't, you know, I just learned about these yesterday, so I'm not an expert, but Basically, uh, when a fever spikes in a small child under the age of five, uh, and it's not necessarily about, uh, you know, how high the temperature gets. It's just that it spikes quickly. Um, sometimes kids will have these things called febrile seizures where uh, they essentially, uh, like their brain short circuits. It gets hot, and it just sort of like short circuits, like an electrical uh, situation. And uh, they go out for a second, and they seize a little bit. And then they come back in into uh, consciousness. And so that's what happened. It's apparently very scary to see, uh, which is why I think Julie said, you know, she's not breathing. And so on and so forth. I told you this was bad. <laughs> so I apologize. Uh, but this is just what's on my brain. So, you know, I'm sitting on this ambulance on Sunset Boulevard holding my daughter. And they're checking things out. And they're kind of talking me down. And I had so much, uh, you know, adrenaline that my left leg was like bouncing uncontrollably, which is sort of weird. And the last time that that happened, uh, believe it or not, uh, was when she was born. Uh, you know, that's a whole other story. There was like a, a moment during the childbirth that was sort of intense. And I remember, uh, trying to maintain composure for my wife who doesn't like medical stuff. And so I remember from the waist up, I was totally like placid and calm, but from the waist down, my legs were shaking really bad. Uh, so apparently that's what happens to me. But, uh, yeah, so that happened, and, uh, you know, the reality, I think, uh, the takeaway at this point is that it's the most frightened I've ever been uh, in my life. It is. Uh, it was the worst fear and really the worst emotional state that I've ever experienced uh, for those seven or eight minutes that I was running to that library. Uh, I was basically dying, <laughs> uh, not to sound too awfully grim, but uh, that's basically what I was doing. Everything was coming apart. And I was trying to describe it to my wife, uh, you know, later in the evening after everything had sort of settled down, we had been to the doctor, uh, you know, once, once, uh, Evan got some Motrin and her fever broke, uh, she bounced right back. You know, it's always the adults who have a harder time with this stuff. So I was sitting around, uh, you know, later that day trying to explain it to my wife cause my wife had been gone when all this stuff was happening. And, uh, I said to her, I said, you know, uh, I feel kind of like, I was on an airplane and, uh, the airplane started doing a nosedive, uh, you know, kind of like headed straight for the earth. Uh, you know, just like that nightmare scenario, just, just nose down screaming towards the earth. And you're thinking this is it. Uh, but then at the last minute at like 5,000 feet, uh, you know, somehow the pilot got control and it leveled off and, and they were able to land like emotionally. I went through that kind of experience, or at least that's how it felt at the time. That's how it feels now looking back on it. And uh, I can't imagine uh, a more intense state of mortal fear. And, uh, you know, to be honest, it's, it's, what happened to me is, is actually probably worse <laughs> than being on an airplane doing a nosedive because my daughter was involved, which makes it even more intense. You know, because if it's me on an airplane, 
uh, and there's a nosedive, that would obviously suck. But, uh, you know, something happening to her, uh, for me, is intolerable. So, obviously it was traumatic. I, I guess I experienced a trauma of some sort, and I'm, I'm still uh, trying to make sense of it. I'm still recovering a little bit and uh, working my way through the discomfort and searching for some sort of perspective. And, uh, you know, I actually, I told Jerry about it, Jerry Stahl, today's guest, uh, before he and I uh, got to recording uh, because, you know, he just became a father again recently. Uh, he and his girlfriend welcomed a baby girl. And, uh, you know, he actually refers to uh, our conversation about this in the interview. So uh, rather than make it some sort of mystery, I figured I would give you some context. Uh, I certainly don't mean to bum you out uh, or anything like that. It's just, uh, you know, this is what's been happening in my world over here uh, recently. So I told you about it. And uh, hopefully, at the very least, it can serve as a reminder uh, that this is all very temporary and that the, uh, you know, the people in your life who uh, mean the most to you, um, you know, go give them a big hug. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I actually did the red carpet. You did? With uh, Clive Owen and Nicole Kidman. Director Philip Kaufman and the sorted producer or two, and uh, wasn't expecting it. A very day of the locust, except that you look up and see yourself projected on these giant screens above the red carpet. Jesus. And uh, yeah. And then you, did you have to go to the screening where they like whistle at the screen and stuff and all that? They did a very interesting thing. We went to the screening, and the plan was we would all file in. To you know, visual applause and everything, because Phil is revered there, and so is Nicole. And we sat down for about three minutes, and then we sort of scuttled out once the movie came up. Went to dinner in some hideaway in the middle of the Palais, as it's called, and then skulked back a few minutes before the credits rolled. Beautiful. The high point of which was. When we scuttled out of the theater, we went into this sort of odd rectangular room, and we all just said, what are we doing here? And I said, just wait. And then the doors closed, and in a very Auschwitz-like experience, everything just shut around us, and it turned out to be an elevator. <laughs> and we were lifted up to dinner. And it was just one of those, like, nothing about this is like anything else I have ever done kind of experiences. Well, and where was this at? You said the Palais? Is that like uh, a That's where they show the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it was in some Byzantine corridor behind, above, underneath, 
adjacent to, I don't know, because I was in a dark room with no windows to get there. Right. I mean, the elevator might have gone sideways for all I know. I don't know. <laughs> it's like Willy Wonka. Very, very Willy Wonka-esque. Willy Wonka with, like, expensive gowns. Wow. Okay, so you're there uh, how many days? Like, what, is this a whirlwind? Or are you there for a week? I or? went there. No, I, I didn't do the week. I went there. I got there on the 24th, left on the 26th, just enough to get massive brain-shattering gel lag. Yeah. <laughs> Going and coming. Yeah. Uh, and this has been like an extremely intense period of time for you. Like a lot has been going on in your life. A lot has been going on. I was actually in France six weeks ago because very much like a jazz musician, a black jazz musician from the 50s, my books don't sell here, but they sell well in France. So they flew me over for some big noir festival with Michael Conley and some other guys. So I got back, um, had a baby in Austin. Wow. And that was festive and intense. Yeah, well, how was that? That was a good experience, obviously. Well, 17 hours of watching your girlfriend get cleaved in half and have 25 stitches. What could be better? Yeah, Yeah. and then, uh, you know, the meconium scare where they think, if you know what that is. Oh, yeah. They think it, like, inhaled poop, and then it's like, we might have to take it to ICU, and you won't be able to hold it for five weeks. Oh, God. But it turned out to be fine. But I mean, it just... I went through stuff like that, too. There's Everybody a, does. There's a lot of weird scares. You roll the dice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then she came out a pinhead, which I had forgotten was normal. Yeah. Did they have to do the, the suction or anything to get her out? Or? Well, it was a, you know, they pulled her out. They just pulled Okay, because yeah, my, my daughter, they had to use, like, this sort of cap or I don't know what it was. But they yeah, were, it was strange. They, they reached in and got her, um, happily not with pliers. They used suction to get the sh- shit out of her throat, if I can say that on your podcast. Of course, yeah. If yeah. not, I will. Apologize profusely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that happened. And then uh, I guiltily, when she was like about eight days old, went to Cannes because otherwise, as my girlfriend said, you'll sit around here moping about it. This way you'll feel guilty instead of regretful. So I, <laughs> the eternal right. uh, the eternal quandary. Right. And uh, I just came back. I'm working in L.A. for a few days because kids can't travel before they're two months. Oh, right. And uh, so, yeah, it's a little topsy-turvy, but uh, as I said before, you know, weird shit happens when you don't die young. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's crazy. And, um, you know, Hemingway and Gellhorn, uh, you know, I just watched it last night, actually, uh, in preparation. Like, what, let's talk about that experience. Like, how did you get to writing that screenplay? Phil Kaufman and I have collaborated a number of times. He's kind of like a mentor, surrogate dad kind of guy for me. Um, How'd you guys meet? Long time ago, there was a project called Prison Fish, which was a, a true story about a guy, a uh, Jewish guy who sort of killed somebody, maybe accidentally, maybe not, ends up in jail rooming with this giant Aryan Brotherhood leader, Jew-hating, old-school, good old boy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hijinks ensue. They become fast friends, and naturally, the movie never got made. But that's that's where we met. Okay, and we did a number of other soon-to-be-never-made projects afterward. And then uh, with this one, with this one, he called me, and uh, I guess it had been around for a while. Uh, a woman named Barbara Turner had uh, cooked up the idea many years ago, written a jumbo script which nobody could make, which I've to this day never read. Though we share credits, this being Hollywood, that's how it works. And uh, Oh, so you guys didn't write as a team. You, you came I never, on. I've never even met her. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, she's a great writer. She did Pollock. I mean, she's done some great stuff. I just, this one didn't happen to be the one. But, uh, yeah, so I wrote a script from scratch. And um, 
originally James Gandolfini was attached. Well, when I was watching it, I was like, or he was attached as Hemingway. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, but when I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, this would be really hard to write. Was it? Was it hard? Or did well, it was tricky for a lot of reasons because it was pretty low budget, despite the fact that it's on a you know like six different co- you know countries. Right. So it had very specific and peculiar problems. Or, for example, it, there was a lot of found footage. Uh, archival footage, and I had to write to that. So I had to shape a scene around, say, the available archival footage of guys in white skiing with guns in uh, Finland, for example. Or, and, and how heavily involved was Kaufman with you in the absolutely? Process? I was the I whole was, way for a couple of years. I was basically living in a motel or a hotel, depending on the budget at the time. <laughs> in, uh, San, in, no, they were great. In San Francisco, and uh, work writing all night, and then going into his, working in Phil's basement, or in the basement, as we like to call it, mm. uh, writing, rewriting, and then just on and on and on and on for a very long time, about oh. two or three years. And then what about, uh, you know, aside from archival film footage and, and uh, stuff of that nature, and then obviously like Hemingway's books and Gellhorn's work, like um, like what what else did the research process entail? Were you really like heavily steeped in all of the biography that you could I find? I wasn't until I rolled in to do the job. I yeah. was not that familiar with Martha Gellhorn beyond – I knew there was a uh, – a journalism award for the basically the journalist who risks the most and does the most dangerous story out of England that is very prestigious. And I heard of that, and I didn't know much more than that. I, I'm not like a giant Hemingway buff. Uh, I became steeped, as you would say, as as uh, as the process went on, because there's just so many arcane details that. Particularly in a project like this, where the special challenges, people already feel like they know him. So out of the gate, you sort of have one kick in the teeth against you. For example, I found out that his youngest son actually died in a woman's jail in Florida. Yeah, Gregory. Um, with a dress on. Yeah. Kind of bled out after surgery. And that's a whole other movie I would like to make someday, though. I'm not sure it's crying out to be done. And, uh, <laughs> it's an easy sell. Come on. <laughs> come on. As are, as are all my projects. That's my career. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I immersed myself, particularly in her. I thought it would be more interesting, and Phil and I agreed to make it from her point of view and her story. Well, she's sort of a heroic figure. Very and, much so. And if you know, like, you know, Hemingway had four wives, and, um, you know, I think uh, I mean, it's hard to I, I feel sort of petty grading them out. But like, you know, oh, Had- Hadley was immensely likable. Um, his immensely first, wealthy. Yeah. And she was, you know, she had a, I mean, he always married wealthy women or he, usually except for Martha, except for Martha. But I mean, Pauline had money. And, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And so and he either married mommies or real sexy women. Yeah. He liked to be either taken care of or have, you know, crazy great sex and adventures. Right. The others were stay at homes. But Martha, the problem was she was braver than he was and was a real badass who didn't take any shit. Right. Which was great for a while, but he couldn't take it. Yeah, and, he, and she could punch back a little bit oh, yeah. in ways that maybe she the others fearless, yeah. yeah, the others couldn't. So, like, I I read a book. Uh, it's actually sitting behind me. It's called The Hemingway Women. I don't oh, know. I if, know that book. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that, we use that a lot. Because, yeah, yeah, no, just because, uh, you know, it's told from the perspective of his four wives, the story of his four wives mm-hmm. as opposed to the story Great of book. him. But you, book, you yeah. learn so much about him by learning or by reading about uh, the women that he was with. Well, I don't know what your life is like, but don't you think if somebody went around interviewing or researching all the 
various and sundry females you were with, <laughs> right, right? You would be. It would paint busted. a picture. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I would pay not to have the book come out. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but no, you know, and I, I found myself. I remember reading that book. It's been years since I actually read it, but I remember really liking Martha. Yeah, she's uh, great. She's yeah. she's super cool, but tough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then what did you, when you came out of the, the process of doing the research and writing the script, like, how did you feel about Hemingway? Like, you know, you said you're not a huge buff before you got into this. By buff, uh, I mean, I wasn't one of those people who could quote lines from, you know, the Green Hills of Africa. But did you... Did, I did, was always more of a, like, a Faulkner, DeLillo, you know, I always liked this sort of, uh, not, not the, I love hard-boiled prose, but Hemingway... Because he was always the books that gym teachers liked, and I never liked gym <laughs> teachers. But I came to really appreciate him and what he did and, and how he lived his life and just the relentlessness of his devotion to, to writing. It, it's impossible not to respect and love that. And He was a big talent. He was a huge talent. And what's fascinating is... And he would be the first to admit it. Everybody would always come up to him and say, how did you invent these short sentences? And where did you come up with this style? And he's like... Hey, that was the Kansas City Star style sheet, right? Which was how he learned. And that was it. And uh, you know, he's a really complicated guy. Uh, like you sort of alluded to it with his son Gregory and the cross dressing, and uh, he had very complicated family relationships. And I don't know, like all uh, he was of the "Don't talk to your children until they're five school." Exactly. <laughs> and he was also which might have to do with the fact. Sorry for interrupting. That he wore a dress until he was five. Well, that's yeah. So that, there's that. Yeah, he wore. You know, his mother. You know, dressed him as a girl, and then. Uh, but you then know, yours. I mean, come yeah. on. Well, mine didn't start till I was in my teens. So yeah, right. A whole other problem. Um, but you know, the, you you look at all of his like machismo and all of the you know the, the killing big animals. Which is another part of it, where you know, when you think about the fishing and the day, like how many animals did that man kill in his lifetime? Like, not that I'm anti-hunting all the way, but there's a part of me that just is sort of like, well, what's the fun of this? You know, to constantly be killing animals every day. Well, uh, I think in his case, it was about testing yourself. They're all challenging animals. Yeah. He wasn't doing the like the Dick Cheney, let's release the you know the little wrens and then shoot them. Right, know? right, right, right. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there's no defending that. And then I've got the Gore Vidal school. It's like, well, of course he was gay. You know, I mean, who knows? Yeah. You know, there's, there's layers and layers there. Okay. So, uh, all in all, like... You don't good... kill big animals when you're not doing this? No, I can't. I don't think I can. I mean, I think if I was, if I needed to eat, I would have no problem doing it. If I was truly out there in like a, you know, uh, hunter-gatherer mode, I could do it. But yeah. uh, otherwise, no, it's just not I understand. I'm yeah. also the grandson of a... My grandfather was a butcher. Uh, and I grew, say no more. Yeah, when I grew yeah. up, I remember going down. My folks are from Louisiana. I remember going down to the, uh, you know, he showed me the old slaughterhouse and stuff when I was a kid. It was rough, you know. Was he showing it to you out of pride of, like, this is what we do? Kind, nah, I mean, kind of. I mean, they had their own shop. It was called the Listy Meat Market. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't call your podcast? Right? No, I know. But, I, you know, yeah. I made my dad a T-shirt um, that said that one year for Father's Day. Just That's like, lovely. Yeah, you know. So uh, a sentimental guy. I am. You yeah. know, it's just such a funny thing. But um, it was he and his brothers. You know, it was a, kind of an immigrant story. You know, they, mm -hmm. like, they, Where are they from? Uh, Sicily. Nice. Yeah, so they came over and then they had that. But, you know, there was that, but they all died of heart attacks in their 60s. Um, well, they made it to 60. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. What had, do you want? They had the cholesterol disease. Don't be greedy. That's what my grandmother used to call the it. cholesterol disease? Yeah. That's one word for it, yeah. Um, so, yeah, man, I don't know. I don't know if I could shoot anything big. I think that maybe, um, 
I think it would really bother me. I don't know. Can you do it? I could maybe mug an animal. I don't know if I could shoot it. <laughs> yeah. Give me a knife. Make it a fair fight. I might take its wallet, but I don't know if I could just, you know, do the thing and rip the horns off the rhino. No. And, you know, I have a memory from when I was a kid uh, with a BB gun shooting a bird and hitting it and then feeling like awful i, I mean i buried the thing and gave it like a proper funeral was it dead oh yeah yeah okay I killed it right away and like i just i remember just being like what why did i just do this yeah i had a similar thing with uh friends of mine were real hunters they had like a 30-06 or some crazy thing and we went out shooting and i i shot a rabbit but i winged it and it started screaming oh god have you ever heard a rabbit scream oh god it was like horrible. And then the father had to like kill it with a shovel and I was like mortified. Yeah. I think the moral is Jews don't hunt. <laughs> That's, that was my takeaway. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, all right. So let's let's dial back a little bit. I want to hear about uh, how you came to be a writer. I want to hear about your life, uh, you know, a little bit uh, of the biography. So like you said earlier, you were from Pittsburgh. I think it was before we actually got yeah. started. So start there. Pittsburgh, born there. Born in Pittsburgh, yeah. Um, there's actually a movie about my life at one point, which you could watch if you're ever bored. Uh, permanent permanent, permanent midnight. midnight, yeah. yeah. It includes a little of the Pittsburgh years. Yeah, I was the son of an immigrant like yourself. Well, I guess you were two generations out. Yeah, yeah, yeah my yeah. father came over in a boat when he was ten. Uh, his mother got got here when she was two, but the she married her cousin who wouldn't send for my father. So there's that family lore. She had to work her ass off in a grocery store before she could send for the unwanted son. <laughs> so that was happy. He was a happy guy. <laughs> uh, checked out at 49 of his own hand, as they say. Oh, God. Uh, well, there I go bragging. But anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was an interesting youth. You know, I mean, being a Jew in Pittsburgh was like, you know, you're being beat up for killing Christ on the way home from third grade. And you're like, was it really that intense? Did I do it in a blackout? Because I don't remember, <laughs> you know, boy. Was it really that intense? It was, uh, it was I'm, tricky. What's the, what's the ethnic, what was the ethnic uh, makeup in Pittsburgh? Well, my particular neighborhood was uh, just, you know, kind of working class. Uh, like Irish Catholic? A lot of Irish Catholics, a lot of uh, what we used to call Slovaks. Yeah. Um, Polish, Italians, uh, the usual, the usual ethno mix. But uh, we were the only Christ killers in the neighborhood, uh, so there was that. And it was and it was really overt anti-Semitism. It was pretty overt, but they were friendly too. You know, it's just it was always kind of the undercurrent. Sure. And my father was the only guy who wore a suit to work. He had like a guy who came up working in coal mines, uh, stuff like that, and then got a law degree and ended up being like deputy mayor, attorney general, federal. Uh, federal judge before it all became too much and he you know did we did it 49 with um carbon monoxide went to the garage and oh did god that. but i'd already left home so you were like so you were out was, of the house i was 16 yeah and you left home at 16 i got shipped off my last two years okay because the schools were on strike so there was basically no schools so the public schools went on strike yeah, yeah. so where'd you wind up i wound up it's very strange, you know, being a working class kid my whole life, I wound up in this uh, kind of a, you know, rich guy's prep school. 
named the Hill School, where I, you know, was, uh, I'd never seen a stereo before, and suddenly I'm surrounded by these, like, Skions, the Sions, Sions, rich kids. Rich kids. <laughs> before I betray my pathetic vocabulary, <laughs> um, so you know it was very culture shocky. Um, you know, yeah. You know, and when you're a kid, you know, when you're a kid and your old man kills himself when you're 16, it's like a license to be as fucked up as you already felt. Yeah. And now you have an excuse to be that fucked up. Right. So you know, because prior to that, my job was to like hold the smelling salts for when my mother would keel over. Um, so it was. I guess the word I would use is festive. <laughs> Just a festive day in childhood. Uh, my sister was a uh, poor thing. She was six years older than me. She was so nervous. She used to what she called driddle her hair. So she would just like play with her hair all the time until she was like half bald. And, you know, my father would be putting his head through the wall and we never repaired it. So we would have these holes in the wall, these family fights where he, he would put his head through a wall. Was he drinking a lot? Nope. Never drunk. Oh, okay. Just angry. Good old on the natch rage. Uh, while my mother would scream and it would be like a museum of dad's rage because we would never fix the holes in the wall. Yeah. So be like, Oh, I remember that. And I was like, Thanksgiving, uh, <laughs> 1959. That was a good one. You know, uh, it was great. Um, but Hey, you know, you couldn't be here if you didn't go there. Yeah. 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 I mean, so how did Happily, you, I, you know, be, I'm completely normal. <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but you know, when you, uh, you know, your adolescence, something like that happens. Like, did you, I mean, you don't have any coping skills. How do you deal? You, what did are you, you saying? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, but happily it coincided with like, I was sort of like too old to be a punk, too young to be a hippie, but I had hippie sisters. So, yeah, I'd started doing drugs at a really early age. At and the I, boarding school? Well, even before then. Okay, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd started doing mescaline. Before I was even drunk, my sister, God love her, slipped me some mescaline. So I was like, wow, there's buses coming out of the sky. Will this affect my grades? That <laughs> <laughs> was that guy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> she was out in Berkeley, so I'd, I'd uh, live there periodically. So she was a... The height was of a, Ho 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 Chi Minh. You know? She was a, a hippie? Still a hippie. Still God a, bless her. Living yeah. in Nepal, Kathmandu. Is hold, she, holding down the fort. Is she really? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I had a conversation. One of the last. I had a conversation with a you know a friend of mine the other day about the hippies and like it's easy to dismiss the hippies and like I was like a hippie wannabe for like a year and a half of college like when I was nineteen I grew my hair out and I had this phase I don't think I qualified as being a true hippie but I took on some of the affectations but uh, we were having this conversation and it's really easy to bag on hippies uh, I think they get a lot of shit and I think that. Uh, what I was arguing is that uh, a lot of their instincts are really good. Agree? I don't disagree. I mean, there's, there's a certain bit of the hippie eth ethos that I kind of like. Yeah. Just fucking relax. Yeah, or just, yeah exactly. <laughs> smell the roses. You know? Yeah. Eat the roses, smoke the roses. <laughs> Basically, it's all about the roses. It's about the roses. <laughs> I don't know. I just, you know, I don't know. I guess I was just I'm with you, debating man. to have the I, debate. I listen in my old because I was just spending some time in Austin. Which is basically like going to Berkeley in 1968, except it's now. Right. And people are just so relaxed and laid back and kind of like weird in a celebratory way. Like, I could really fucking do this. Yeah. If I didn't like have to make a living. Right. You know? <laughs> and, if, you were, if you were content to like be in a band at night and work in a coffee shop by yeah, day. Yeah, if I had enough skills to be in a band. I mean, had, had I been able to be in a band, I would never become a writer. I would have much rather become a rock and roll star. Yeah, that's what I always say, too. A, if I had any band. musical talent at all. Yeah, much better. I just, I just wanted a world, you know, a life where I could like basically, you know, 
be loaded naked 3 a.m. in the morning and make a living that way. You know, <laughs> that was nuts. that was my that was that was my bar. <laughs> is, that you know? so, is that so much to ask? Well, if you're a writer, you can do that. You know, so yeah. you can make a living, and you're not on staff somewhere, right? <laughs> Um, so uh, let's get to early career. Uh, you know, you went to Columbia. Did for a couple of years and did dropped you, out and then came back. Did you know, like, when did you know you were going to write? Always wanted to be a writer. I mean, Always. Yeah. You know, I mean, all my heroes were junkies, but half were musician junkies. Like, you know, you're Charlie Parker's and yeah. Miles and uh, Keith Richard. And the other half were writer junkies, you know, like William Burroughs and those guys. Uh, so I just figured, okay, I'm going to be a writer. You know, this is what I'm doing. So I started writing really early on. Wow, I dropped out of college. Even when I was in college, like the Village Voice, always writing about weird. I love the gonzo shit where you just plunge into strange situations, do a lot of drugs, and write about yourself, experiencing whatever you're supposed to be writing about. Right. But I was kind of at the tail end of that. Um, but that's that's what got me. You know, I love that. That and uh, I, I won a big award when I was 20, the Pushcart Prize by submitting a short story to Hustler that got rejected and then won a big literary award. So that's that's my career in a nutshell. That was <laughs> that got you started. That gave you some confidence. <laughs> in yeah. a weird way, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I you, know, you can't make a living writing, so I had to write, like, the fake s- sex letters for Penthouse Forum, and I would, like, sit on one side of the desk and ask the question and then sit on the other side of the desk and answer it. Write girl copy for porn magazines while trying to write quote unquote literature. <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. You worked for Hustler, right? You had like an actual staff point, job. Yeah, that got me out of New York uh, to the glamorous city of Columbus. Yeah. Columbus, Ohio. That's yeah, where it was lived, based. I lived in a YMCA in Columbus. Oh, God. So I was there when he got shot and was hanging out with Jimmy Carter's sister and the whole. It was pretty dramatic. And then they brought me out here and I stayed six months on that job, just long enough to get unemployment. Okay. In L.A. at the ripe age of, I don't know, 20-something. 20-something. Okay. And so uh, television... It's an inspiring story, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) For the kids? Well, you got to start somewhere. Sure. You know? Um, And, and, you know, with regard to the substance abuse and, like, you know, that was obviously in your 20s that was happening. That was always always happening. But, you know, I managed to do a lot of journalism, which sadly, because none of it's on the net, it's like it never happened because it was like pre-internet. Right. So I did a lot of years writing. They used to let you publish like 10,000 word pieces in California Magazine or places like that. So I did a lot of that stuff. So, okay, but like in terms of like balancing and like being... You want to hear about drugs and sex. I want to hear about about drugs and sex, but I'm also interested in the productivity, like how you... um, you know, like you were able to get... It was always very simple. I was not a guy who used drugs to party. I used drugs to work. I mean, it was like typing paper, whiteout. Uh, it was pre-computer. Yeah. Pencils and drugs, whatever they may be, you know. To was, keep you up. Drugs had the adjectives. You know, that's where the adjectives were. But eventually, obviously, it's a candle that kind of... Well, there is that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, you know, it's like every survival tool. It eventually kills you. Yeah. So uh, when did, like, when, when you finally uh, got sober, like, did, what did that do to your writing career? Did you, did you feel like you had to relearn uh, how to oh, be yeah. creative? You know? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I had, I'd stumbled into the TV before then because I, I met this woman who, God bless her, married me for a green card, but she was in TV. And so I sort of fell into that, and it was like, wow, I can make, like, all this money for something that takes like four days when I spend 10 weeks on a story that gets me like three grand. Um, but in terms of creativity, I had never written about myself. You know, I used words to kind of hide the reality of my life. 
And having stumbled out of writing and ended up homeless, you know, I won't bore you with the sordid drugalogue. But, you know, a little bit of MacArthur Park, if anybody knows, in downtown L.A., uh, the corner of Crack and 8-Ball. You know, all those places you could buy a human soul for like a quarter. If people were buying, you could sell one. And uh, I ended up bumping into somebody on Hollywood Boulevard. They said, what the fuck happened to you, you know? And I kind of told them, and they said, God, you should write about that. And I hadn't written in a really long time, so I was way raw. So I wrote this article for a magazine that doesn't even exist anymore called L.A. Style, which kind of morphed into L.A. Magazine. And I think they titled it uh, Naked Brunch, of all things. <laughs> That's sort of funny. Yeah. I, I take no credit. <laughs> right. And uh, from that, I ended up mysteriously getting an agent after a year or so. But, you know, there's always that misunderstanding where, like, the agent said, yeah, it'll be like, just mention a lot of celebrities. It'll be like you never eat lunch again in this town. I'm like, <laughs> that was so not my reality. Right. But, but it's sort of like if you haven't had sex in a while, and then when you come, it's, like, too much and it's, like, embarrassing. <laughs> and, you know, I, I somebody gave me a little computer, and I, I didn't know how to use it. So it wasn't even on double space. It was on one and a half space. So after I got my book deal... I turned in this, like, ungodly 2,700-page manuscript, and they're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm like, I, I, I didn't realize. I thought it was double-spaced. Maybe it's, like, a 1,000 or something. And uh, long story short, the editors at Warner Books, whose name I can no longer remember, um, they wanted to – what they wanted was more of the Hollywood stuff. So they made it sort of like, oh, TV writer gone bad, you know, yuppie gone bad. When in fact, that was like about 20% of my story. And the rest was like gnarly, homeless, creepy, you know, unspeakably lame crimes and women and stuff. And that sort of got winnowed out. And uh, so I ended up writing this like TV writer gone bad book called Permanent Midnight. Yeah. And which, so, um, you know, it's fine. It's just. Not not all that it could be. So I had to. I was sort of tagged with that. Oh, who gives a shit? Yuppie gone bad guy, you know, for years. But better I mean, than having nothing. Yeah, I mean, and when you look back, I mean, is, is there any like resentment to the people who tried to shape it in that way, or do you? No, fuck no. no. I mean, listen, they, you know, I'm so lucky to have like just been like pulled out of the abyss. I mean, it was like, who knew being a dope fiend was a great career move? You know? <laughs> <laughs> who knew it was research? Right, man? Right. You know, come on. That's the concept thing you were talking about. Kind yeah. Of. It's just like, you just don't know, you know? And so you were like in the midst of all this though, you were, you were preceding this, you were writing for television. I had been a little, but when you, when I say writing for television, I would turn in scripts that got rewritten and, you know, somehow my name would remain on them. I mean, I was fired from all the best shows like Twin Peaks and uh, Northern Exposure and I used to love Northern Exposure. I'm sure it's great. I never saw one episode. My name seems to be on one. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful. Got residuals and health insurance. Paid for the rehab or two. And uh, Alf, I did a couple of. So you know, even now it's like on my grave, on my tombstone, I'll be like, I did not invent Alf. You know? <laughs> it's like I've written six books, you know, and all this shit, and you. What's the first interview question? Hey, what was Alf like? Was that, little, that little guy was, <laughs> I was so I'm cool. I'm not going to ask. I was hey, I'm sorry. I'm going to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm what are you going to do? Everybody's got resist. their cross to bear. Yeah. That's my little furry cross to bear. It is, you know, but he was a lovable guy. Damn lovable. From yeah. and, then, and then the guy who played, I guess, Max Wright, the actor, became like a heinous 
sad crackhead and got smoked himself out of the business. Wait, he, the guy who was like, the dad? Oh, the dad on the show. Apparently, I didn't know. We could have been friends. Yeah, I was I, so Al focused. Yeah. I, I, I who wasn't? Yeah, I come on, it's like no one else existed. <laughs> but so that happened. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so uh, you consider like permanent midnight, the writing of it, the publication of it, that was sort of like a turning point. Yeah. I mean, it gave me a entree back into the world of whatever. And then, uh, and how old were you when that happened? I didn't publish a book till I was, well, by the time I came out, I was like 39, 40. Yeah. So essentially that's when, you know, my writing career of books and movies and stuff began. Uh, and when you started out, you know, did I didn't you, write the screenplay to Permanent Midnight, by the way. Oh, you did not? Why ask me? What do I know? <laughs> um, it was produced by a, a great guy named Don Murphy, who's somewhat controversial for having a fist fight with Quentin Tarantino at one point. Um, I Over guess what? That, what was that I about? I wasn't there. Oh, you know. weren't? Okay. Who knows? I'm sure they were both in the right. And uh, he had produced with this writing team, uh, well, with his team's producing partner, and a writer named David Velos, who apparently came up with Natural Born Killers. But, uh, you know, very nice screenwriter and director, very nice guy. Not a lot of familiarity with heroin. Nice Mormon fella. But I remember getting, <laughs> I mem- and I say that with love, I remember getting the first draft. And I was like, Jerry shoots up and gets the munchies. <laughs> wow, that is just wrong on so many levels. You know? <laughs> oh, no. But, you know, Ben and I kind of rejiggered it and he shot some of it in his own. And, you know, it all worked out. And again, I have nothing bad to say about any of it because it, did yeah. you want to write the screenplay or was it one of those things? It was never even on the table. It wasn't. But what, the money fell out immediately. I never even, I didn't even know about screenplays. I didn't even know about Final Draft. I thought people just went on a movie set and started talking. I knew <laughs> nothing. Right, know? right. But uh, Ben, who like became a great friend, I ended up being best man at his wedding, and he uh, had been offered his chance to write a movie called What Makes Sammy Run, the great Bud Schulberg book. And after we had dinner one night, he said, hey, man, you want to write a movie with me? And so while the money had sort of fallen out, Permanent Midnight wasn't going to be made for a while. I'm like a few months out of living nowhere. And suddenly I'm on like Sly Stallone's private jet eating like, you know, Sly's leftover tuna fish sandwiches (laughs) on the way to St. Bart to like, you know, uh, have Christmas with like all these Russell Simmons type people. And I'm just like this yokel. I'm wearing like. 55 year old corduroys and combat boots and everybody else is like in trendy Caribbean wear. Right. You know? <laughs> so it was just a strange ride, but that's how I learned to write movies. And that's how, you know, I got into that biz. Thanks to Ben, who remains a great friend. Okay. So now you, you did, did you did co-write the, the Schulberg with him? Yeah, we did. It never got made. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if there was some, uh, like another movie. No, all did. contracts for my, when I signed on to skip, the contract literally has do not make movie on top of the contract. That's pretty much how <laughs> things go. Every once in a while, there's an exception. It's so hard. It's so fickle and weird and, you know. Ah, whatever. You know, I'm, just not, I'm not that commercial, but I, you know, I. What about iFatty? Like, it feels like. Well, well, Johnny Depp optioned that in perpetuity. Uh, actually, I think uh, HBO is doing a Fatty Arbuckle miniseries or movie, but it's not based on this book. It's based on another book. Okay. That oh. seem, I mean, that seems like it has some, like, some good, like, juicy commercial prospect. There's something there. Well, apparently it did, but apparently not with my book because, you know. What about, I mean, would Depp play Fatty? He was, was he going to get Well, the it? idea was um, Philip Seymour Hoffman was going to play him. Oh, yeah. And uh, Johnny would have played Buster Keaton, who was his best friend. Oh, right. And they got a director involved who directed Johnny's least popular or worst 
B.O. failure movie called The Libertine, which I actually loved. A guy named Dunmore, Lawrence Dunmore from England. And, we, you know, didn't work out, Yeah, as often happens. But, again, can't complain. Got a lot of money for the option. And uh, although now he owns it in perpetuity, which means, you know, when you and I are dead and cockroaches are roaming the earth, he will still own the rights to that book <laughs> right now. And action figures. Should he and say, the right? Fatty Arbuckle action figure, which is sure to yeah. be a huge hit. With oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, other books, and let's talk about um, plans for the future. Like, what are you like? What, what what are you hoping to do going forward? Be nice to survive. Yeah, that would be you great. Know, I mean, call, now that you have a young call me, kid, call me crazy. Yeah, I got another. I'm doing this uh, these columns on the Rumpus site, OG Dad, which I'd like to do as a book someday uh, about the miracle and wonder of birth in your golden in your pre golden golden years. And uh, I have this book coming out on a little publication called Bad Sex on Speed. Another one for the kids. <laughs> it's coming out. In it's frame. a pop-up book. You know? <laughs> yeah, you will pop up when you read it, but not in the place you expect. Um, whatever the fuck that means. And uh, it's coming out in France, and then it's coming out here a little later in January. Uh, as a, and um, I just signed with Larry. I, I've, I've got this writing partner, new writing partner, Larry Charles, you know, the Borat oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. director. Great guy. Curb your enthusiasm. He kind of optioned my last massively non-selling novel, Painkillers, which is about... A lighthearted romp about Joseph Mangala, who's like 90 years old and living in Reseda and not happy about it. So uh, somehow through a long, convoluted story that involves Nicholson playing Mangala for two minutes that never happened, um, we met and we just got a, uh, a deal at DreamWorks to write an animated movie. Oh, cool. So, you know, hopefully, you know, I won't have to sell my tainted blood anytime soon, but you never know. Yeah, so how did you – and Larry just read the book and liked it, and that's how you guys met. Well, like I say, um, oddly enough, uh, Nicholson's manager – well, not his manager. I guess a partner in his company who – this is really fascinating – whose last name was actually Giddis. I don't know if you remember J.J. Giddis from Chinatown. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, his yeah. name is Giddis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just throwing that in is some bit of Strange Hollywood coincidence. arcana, arcana, yeah. weirdness. And uh, that's he. He put us together. He said you should meet with Larry because he would ostensibly have uh, directed this again, soon to be never made movie that we're working on. And uh, so yeah, we hooked up and we worked on a number of projects. And uh, he's yeah, he's just. I mean, he just directed uh, the Dictator, right? Yeah, he's got an interesting. I like his little like guerrilla filmmaking. You know, the such. He's, ama- he's an amazing, amazing, interesting guy. He's, you know, obviously Larry David's partner and. Um, but we've just kind of teamed up because you have know, the same sense of it. At some point, you know, when you reach a certain age, it's like there's only a few people who will even get your fucking references. So it's fun to work with them. Right. Because who else will get your William Frawley jokes, you know? I don't, I don't get it. He played uh, Fred on The Lucy Show. Okay. So, well, okay. You don't even know what The Lucy Show is. I love Lucy. <laughs> I know. I know Before I your time. And, I know. I, and I'm, you know, I'm just dating myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, We're having a great time. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, our first date. Yeah. So where are you living now? Do you have like a home base? Or you sort you seems like you're sort of like uh, peripatetic. You know, you're, you're moving around. Or is Austin home? Does that mean I don't have the use of my legs? No. no. Oh, no. Because I do have the use of my legs. I'm sorry. Yes. Right, peripatetic. Right. Thank you. Uh, peripatetic. I'm very peripatetic. In fact, I'm, I'm walking now, even as we speak. <laughs> I, uh, I live on the east east side of L.A. near downtown. Okay. And uh, like, yeah. So this is home for you? Yeah, LA, LA is sort of the fact. You know, LA is the place you move to make enough money so you can move out. Right. You know. Right. Uh, 
I, I was spending a lot of time in Paris for a while and uh, for a variety of reasons. And now I'm back here and spending some time in Austin, which I really like. But, you know, my, my older daughter lives here, and uh, this is kind of where I can make passes for a living occasionally. Right. Yeah, it's feast or famine, to coin a phrase. So yeah, I'm here now. And then how do you like how how do you work like in terms of your day to day? Do you a man being chased? <laughs> yeah, man. Because I you know I didn't get nothing public. Nothing. Listen to me. Suddenly I'm Joe Ghetto. I didn't get nothing published, man. Until I was forty, <laughs> and uh, so I'm always working on book. I have another novel. It's like eighteen months late for uh, Harper Collins. A chunk of which will come out. And this collection I edited for Akashic Books. I don't know if you know that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's Johnny, it's Temple. Johnny Temple. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, yeah. Great guy. And uh, it's called The Heroin Chronicles. So a story I wrote in there called Possible Side Effects about a guy who's like he, – he kind of fails as a writer. So he ends up writing The Side Effects. And his big claim to fame is he came up with the term anal leakage. <laughs> um yeah, another highbrow effort. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm finishing that one for HarperCollins. Uh, and then, like I say, I have this other one, little one coming out, Bad Sex on Speed, on a smaller indie label, so to speak. And, um, I mean, like everyday, everyday writer? Five every day, days a every week? Night, yeah, you know, always, it, it's just kind of, it's like the only thing harder than writing is not writing. So I, I try to do that, yeah. Well, and, and is the work pleasure? But it's not like I'm getting, you know, it's not always about the money. It's just about the writing. It's sort of like, you know how like a hamster has to like chew something or its teeth will grow through its jaw and kill it? Yeah. It's, it's the hamster theory. It's the nonstop jaw growing, teeth mauling <laughs> theory. If, if you don't do it, best. If I don't do it, I will eat through my face. <laughs> Who wants that? <laughs> no, the, the whole face eating thing. I don't know if you saw that in the Oh, news. yeah. That's, Dude, why was I saying that? I yeah. can't shake that. But if you eat your own face, you're not a cannibal. That's right. You're just vaguely creepy. You're just a masochist, and you have yeah. very large, sharp I love teeth. the taste of your own gums, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, do you enjoy the work? Like, do you enjoy it, or is, is it pleasurable, or is it the kind of thing that you just sort of have to do and you get through it and it's like pleasurable in retrospect. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, I, I know there's writers who just, you know, you always read about these guys who just get up and like Simonon, you know, write 500 books, you know, before breakfast. Yeah. Or like or a book every 11 days. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, God bless. And, you know, I was, uh, I was originally, I mean, there are people who, who do that, but I, I, sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow. It's just, I just know if I stop doing it, it'll be like, I don't know if I'll ever do it again, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of fulfillment. It's also fear driven, but it's also, what else are you going to do? Especially, you know, you reach my age, which is, you know. How old are you? Do you mind me asking? I'm 58. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Couldn't be prouder. <laughs> but, you know, I always sort of subscribe to the Tennessee Williams theory, you know, because he would always lie about his age. And then when they busted him, they say, man, you're like eight years. He said, yeah, but I don't count the years I worked in a shoe store, you know. <laughs> so I figure the 15 dope fiend years, we don't count them. Yeah. Take those so, right off. Uh, you're only as old as your liver. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's it's weird to be this old. I mean, it's surreal because I meet guys my own age and are like old, creepy, smelly guys. And I'm like, what do you I look great? For? I mean, like, you, you don't look 58, you know? I know. Wait till I put my clothes on. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> but then, you know, it's like it's this thing in this OG dad, you know, this uh, this column I'm doing for Rumpa. So it's like, yeah, great. Thank you. But, you know, I'll still be the guy 
who's like when my daughter is 10 years old, it's like, who's that guy in a walker in the playground? You know, <laughs> right. it's like, that is correct. You know, but it gives you, but you, you know, gives you, gives you great motivation to take good care of yourself, right? I think sometimes people, uh, as they get older, let go too much, or I don't know. I'm way too vain for that, yeah. Especially because you know, I've already like collapsed and been old. I mean, you're really old when you're a dope fiend. You are just so fucking creepy. It ages you. Oh my god! So I've tried to compensate for that by going for the buff Jewish gym teacher look for many years, <laughs> you know, uh, as best I can. So do you like exercise a ton and stuff like that? I ex- yeah, I hit the Y uh, just because you know the sight of like eighty year old men with balls down to their ankles just so <laughs> stimulating for work. It's like, well, that's my future. Why do they descend like that? And you know, the qigong and all that stuff. And uh, what is qigong? Why do I not? It's it's, it's sort of. Uh, it's just Chinese. It's like a martial art that doesn't involve any hitting. It, it's like standing yoga. Okay. But yeah. it, it's, it gets your chi stirred up, damn it. And uh, all this stuff because not that I'm some physical fitness buff, but when you reach a certain age, it's like running up a down escalator just to stay in the middle. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm sort of trying to stay in the middle. But I find like, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 36 and I feel like uh – and you look fantastic. <laughs> I thought you were like in your twenties. Seriously, you? no, dude. Could be those I, snug shorts. I, I, I don't know. I just, uh, I know, I just find that like I can already feel that like if I don't, oh man, maintain this, it's gonna go. Yeah. It's gonna it, go. Exactly. Whenever I have to go on the road and I come back, it's like this is so. This is how I feel. I'm basically 106, and I make weird noises without knowing it. Yeah. It's like I remember my daughter telling me, Dad, you know, when you get out of the car, you make that old man noise, like. Oh God! It's like, when did that happen? You yeah, know? yeah, no. But it, it happens, so uh, you just kind of fight it. Because also, you know, I have you know pharmaceuticals uh, and antidepressants work for a lot of people. I've tried them all, and aside from turning my dick into a doorbell, they never really did much. <laughs> um, so you know, for me, it's just like working out or whatever. That's that's what does it. That's me you too. Know? That's me too. Like yeah. I, I've had this conversation on this show uh, once or twice before, where it's like, for me, if I don't exercise, my you know my mood is not nearly as uh, steady. Do you come from a family of happy people? Generally, happy yeah. Sicilians. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. I come from yeah. a good family. We have a happy family by most standards, but like, so you don't have like suicides and madhouse, like you know. no, nothing like that. Yeah. But. Um, you know, I think that there's... You well, know, we can e- still be friends. I'm not saying. <laughs> yeah. Every family has its stuff, you know, but, like, it's nothing that, like, dramatic and immediate in my, you know, immediate family. But, um, you know, I don't know. That's, like, the function that it takes on for me was, as far as exercise goes. And then, um, you know, you, you mentioned Qigong. Like, do you do... Do you really do that? Yeah. No, you, I'm lying. I don't... Because <laughs> I want to look good. What the fuck kind of question is that? I know. Just, no, I don't do that, man. I've never gone to a gym. I, in fact, I'm wearing a man girdle. No, right but now. is there like a spiritual element to that that I'm... That, that's what I was sort of asking. It's like, do you Well, do you I like, find people who talk about how spiritual they are are generally not that spiritual. Right. But if by spiritual, like, spiritual you mean not being an asshole... To people around here, here's the deal. I come from a family of depressos. Right. We used to think my mother would go on vacation. She was getting electroshock at like Western Psychiatric. Oh God. And my family, you know, I come from the kind of people who walk into a room and you want to kill yourself. You, know? <laughs> just, you don't even know. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm so miserable. I think I, I don't know what it is. You know, I just as spiritual as I get is I don't want to inflict my despair on other people. If that makes it, that's that's like, noble. Well, I don't know if it's noble, but it's it's a survival mechanism for all involved. You know, it's just 
Because if you're so depressed, you depress other people. It's really depressing. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a kid, you don't want to inflict your moods on them. That's right. And, you know, I come from a family of, like, weepers and not get out of betters and suicides, you know? So how did you how do you avoid that? Like, you know, I mean, you obviously, like you're saying, you exercise, you have awareness of it. But, you know, with that kind of um, background, like, a, a lot of people who who go through that kind of thing don't come out of it as well as you see. Well, no, I, listen, I am no paragon of, like, you know, talk to the, you know, stacked up ex-wives and I'm... <laughs> Uh, read their blogs, um, <laughs> I say, cheerfully. Uh, no, I mean, listen, man, it's not like it's all sunshine and buttercups. No, but I mean... The- but, you know, you try because I just think it's 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 kind of the last frontier is, is, is just not, you know, just not being a dick, you know, especially if you have the dick gene, yeah. you know. The misery genes. I mean, my, you know, I'm a guy whose mother, his own mother, nicknamed him Misery Guts when I was six. You know? Misery Guts? Hey, there's Misery Guts, you know. Uh, oh, you know. I was the pot calling the kettle Semitic or was something. That, what, kind of, what kind of kid were you? Were you a mopey kid? I mean, were you a... a Hell yeah. Are you yeah. kidding? I mean, uh, where I was growing, I was like, uh, I had big parent shame. My mother was the kind of would go on like family vacations and she would throw up on the Liberty Bell, you know, like lots of, <laughs> you know, lots of public shame. That actually you know? happened. I kid you not. So, but I did smack the mic. Forgive me. Um, that'll clear your earwax. So yeah, I mean, it was just a family of like a lot of shame and shaming and, uh, you know, see permanent midnight. I don't want to give the sordid details because we'll all just cry. <laughs> Um, I want to ask. It, feeds, it drives you. Yeah. Like I'm a guy who's I'm very reserved and in a certain way, but I'll say anything in print, you know. But in public, I just don't want to call any attention to myself. Yeah. I, I never wanted to be that junky guy who got like five thousand piercings and like. Eh. I, it's like I, I was the William Burroughs school. I just want to blend in. No, that's how I've talked about. I'm yeah. the same way, man. When like I, if I I was talking about how uh, if I move somewhere. And the dress code is different somehow. There's like a different aesthetic happening. I will assume You'll it. adapt. Oh, yeah. So you're lucky because you have a, a pleasant, good-looking American face. I have the like weird Jew hate face. No, you don't. So wherever I go, it's going to be, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I could wear, you know, I could wear, what do you have, a little penguin on your shirt? Yeah, there? I got a little, little penguin. Logo? A little penguin. A little penguin. What brand is that? Penguin. That's the penguin shirt. Yeah, I could do the penguin shirt. Yeah. And uh, I feel like the, I feel like the penguin is actually very LA. It's like very Los. I Angeles. guess it is, and I'm I applaud you for it. <laughs> but I, it's sort of like when I try to write like a normal person, I sound freakish. So if I wear the penguin shirt, I'll just look like what is he a pedophile? You know, <laughs> it, just, it just won't work for me. So what, what's your what's your thing? You're wearing a black t-shirt, just a black shirt, black jeans guy. You know, same shit for years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you I wear the to, same thing every day or anything? Like, and you well, have that kind of thing. I will going change on? out, but I've yeah. never figured out LA. You yeah. know, it's like. You can't wear a black T-shirt on hot days, but I'm not a shorts guy. No, me neither. Because I have, like, my legs look like I've taken shrapnel because of this fucking cure I had to take for Hepsi. And um, I know. I've never figured it out. I don't do heat, but somehow you persevere. So wait, what's this cure that you have to take? Oh, I, I went through this experimental, this trial drug thing for hepatitis C, which I've had for years. What? When, can, I mean, forgive me for not knowing, but, like, what is that? What is hepatitis C? What does it involve? Um, it involves dying. 
Uh, it's sort of like what junkies got instead of AIDS. Okay. It's like the junkies who actually cleaned their needles or didn't share, but bleached them. Uh-huh. They didn't get the HIV, but they got the lesser bullet. Okay. So, you know, we thought, oh, at least, eh. but then, you know, you realize, hey, this is going to fucking kill me. So, yeah, it's basically a disease that always makes you feel like you're having a hangover, that you haven't gotten loaded, and you're, like, tired, and your liver's turning into a paperweight. And, oh, Jesus. Uh, whatever. Man, I, again, you know, I'm very grateful to not be in worse shape than I am. Right. And part of the reason that I went to the gym so much is because until I actually took this experimental, not-yet-on-the-market Cedars-Sinai drug trial thing, and I still have to be tested every month. My, You know, that's why I get... I have, like, worse tracks now than I did when I was a junkie because they could never get a vein. Oh, okay. I have to do blood work. Um, there I go bragging again. <laughs> but, you know, because I was always in such bad shape, I would be in denial by going to the Y and working out and everything. So I, I could be, like, the decent, you know, the sort of buff corpse. You know? <laughs> that is a, that's a nice thing to aspire to. But I, I feel like, like uh, I, I need to do that. Like, I want to be... Uh, as physically functional for as long as I can be. Do you know well, what I'm then I recommend getting a terminal disease <laughs> because nothing will shake your ass up like a terminal disease. Like, you know, the great gift of getting hepatitis C was that it made me really fucking healthy. Yeah, Does yeah it, sure. it, I'll be like the vegan yoga, you know, walk the dog fast, you know, gym guy. Because what's the alternative, man? To to, to if I f- looked as bad as I felt. I mean, I would look like, you know, Wallace Shawn's fat, disheveled brother, you know? <laughs> do, do you find that uh, having it, you know, you, the, the physical stuff aside, do you find that, like, psychologically, uh, you you know, you're more disciplined or you're, uh, I don't know. I don't want to use I know what touch you, of, mean. you know what I'm saying? Like, does it, does it, does it, has it heightened your level of consciousness well, in a real way? Or is it the kind of thing that, like, once you have it, eventually it just becomes part of your everyday reality? And Well, it's interesting. Like, we, you talk about the spirituality thing. The, the Chinese say the liver is the organ of anger. What the nurses at Cedars said is hepsi is the asshole disease because it just makes you moody. It gives you kind of brain fogs. You're sort of perpetually looking for the keys that are in your hand. And it's hard writing because it's hard. Fo- you're always just kind of bitter and like, yeah, when the fuck? And, you know, so it forces you to be vigilant. Um, coming back to that spiritual thing you asked about, about not being a schmuck. So it makes you more conscious of your moods because they can really control you. And I know that if you feel really bad, it's hard not to just make everybody feel bad, you know? So it's like, it's contagious, you know, it's like emotional leprosy. Right. Right. Uh, so it, it does make you more conscientious. Uh, how do you pull your, how do you pull yourself out of those moods? I mean, aside, aside from like Qigong, it's really tricky. I mean, it's easier now because I'm theoretically on paper cured, at least for the moment until it could pause. You're not cured until free. You're virus free for a year. So it's only been six, like four months actually. So it's, I'm in the new world of non diseasedom Oh, wow. Um, well, I can still die of cirrhosis. So it all works out. <laughs> um, it's a matter of just trying. I hate that word mindful. It's like so many words have been like new. I know. I, I was like, stumbling earlier because I didn't want to say present, yeah, you know? Yeah. I, I just, cause the present is a present. Yeah, thank you. All that shit. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> but you know, it's like George, George Bernard Shaw, this great quote, you know, ideas aren't responsible for the people who embrace them. So yeah, all those ideas are great. But when you 
espouse them, you sound like a douche. Yes. So uh, you sound like a douche for saying they're douchey. You just can't win. It's hard stuff to talk about. It's hard stuff to write about. But since you asked on a practical – I mean, to me, spirituality – because the most spiritual guy I met was like – the guy who kind of saved my life was uh, Hubert Selby. I was going to ask you about him. I, I studied with him in graduate school. Oh, my God. USC? Yeah. I'm, Cubby yeah, was and, my and teacher. And I loved, I loved Cubby because his th- he was such a badass, but he was completely spiritual. But he would fucking swear oh, and yeah. curse. Oh, and yeah. He was the best. You'd get in a car with him. Good God. You know? <laughs> and uh, that really taught me something, especially because there's that cliche, oh, when I get clean, I'm going to lose my edge, man. Mm. And, he, and he said to me this brilliant thing. No, man, you don't get it. When you're off drugs, you're going to see how really fucking crazy you are and you have nothing to blame it on, you know? Right. And that is really true. I'll tell you, you know? some of the most... Uh, emo- what was it like having him for class? Awesome. Same, But same way. Like, he was sharp as a tack. It was towards the end of his life when I was in graduate school with him. And he was sharp as a tack uh, up until the end. He got every joke. He told some of the best ones. He had that great laugh. You know, I always used to say that he he, he talked like a Muppet with a Brooklyn accent. Kind of. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> a great description. Yeah. yeah I absolutely. mean, he just, yeah. it was very distinct, but he was sweet as can be. And he used to tell us uh, that he was kind of like a frustrated preacher. And I, I remember him, uh, or, you know, that I think that he described himself that way when he was talking about his career as a writer, you know, and that was like, it was like a self-assessment uh, at the end. Kind of like, I think I always wanted to be a preacher. But I couldn't realize it, and so I became a writer. That's fascinating. And, yeah. You know, you, you like he'd read some of these personal essays, and I know. I mean, it would just. I it know. Would, like, I very rarely would get. I very rarely get super moved by a reading, but he was. It was like a tearjerker, like not a dry Absolutely. eye in the house. Absolutely, and and you know what? A guy like that earns the right to be spiritual. Yeah. Because I'm still a pain snob in a way. You know, I don't like this about myself, but. I sort of don't trust anybody who hasn't been to hell. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I walk in here today, and you tell me this story about your child, which you probably may or may not want to share on the radio, but I've already violated your confidentiality. <laughs> right. It's like, I, I love this guy, because you get what that kind of terror and torment and fear is, even if it was just for a moment. It's like, okay, I can relate to this person. Right. Um, and, and Selby, you know, he's a guy who kicked dope in the fucking West Hollywood jail, strapped down, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, he's that guy, if your feet hurt, he has no feet, you know, he will always one down you, you right, know? Right, but he right. somehow manages to be more chipper, and I don't even think he would ever use the word spiritual, he'd probably spit in your face, Yeah, but that to me is what spirituality is. It's surviving and kind of making people a little better off for you having been in their presence for two seconds. Right. Which now that I've said that sounds so Billy Grammy, I want to like scratch my eyes out and set them on fire and stomp on them. Right. But I can't say I've attained that, but a guy like Selby absolutely has, as you know, because you were with him. Did you go to his memorial at the Egyptian? Of course. That, yeah, I was yeah. sitting there. That was that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, the, remember the... Uh, I think I might have had to speak. I'm not I sure. think you, yeah. you may have. I mean, that yeah. was, you know, was years ago, but it was... Uh, I remember the, the last written words of Selby. The last thing he wrote down was a list of indignities... Uh, birth, birth, death. <laughs> That's so classic. A, a list of life's indignities: birth, death. And yeah, a, you know, great you sense of humor. About spirituality. I remember hearing him speak once. He said, "If I met God, you know what I'd do? I'd fuck him up the ass." <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. You can Which, go there. If God were Catholic, I mean, uh, <laughs> what am I saying? Yeah. Right. So there's that, and that you know, he was a total role model for me because when I wrote my 
Permanent Midnight. I didn't even know him when I put the book in his hand. And he said, yeah, I'll read anything. And he read it, and he gave it back to me. And all he said was, you know, when you write about people you hate, it's more interesting if you write about them with love. Which from anybody else would be so vomit-inducingly hokey. But coming from like the biggest badass in the world of literature, it's like, I get it. And yeah. I went back, and I kind of tried to do that. And it was a much more interesting book. Wow. Okay. And so how did you guys meet? Like, did he... Let's just say we both had the same hobbies oh, yeah. as younger men. Right, right, So right. We, we met where people with those hobbies go yeah. uh, in an anonymous way. So that's how we met. And you stayed friends after that? Uh, yeah. He, I worked with him and stayed friends. Sure, yeah. And I remember once when I relapsed and I needed money, he let me interview him for spin. And he, just, and he gave me $40 and laughed in my face because I was like completely pinned, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's hard. Well, and it's absolute non-judgmental heart, and I learned so much from that. No, 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 that was like the thing. Like when I was talking to um, somebody recently about uh, graduate school in Selby, and I was like, the most instructive thing because you know workshops that you know there's a million things said about them, and the, uh, you know some people love them, some people hate them, some people think they work, some people think they don't. But just the opportunity to sit in a classroom with him and to be around a writer of that stature who hadn't, who had gotten to the end of his life and still had it you know had the sense yeah. of humor and had real Absolutely. humility and yeah. wasn't an asshole wasn't uh you know yeah he he was depressed in the way that people are depressed sometimes but it didn't defeat him he was undefeated to me at least yeah. i see i feel i felt like a lot of writers that i grew up loving and it seems like you were the same way um they went batshit yeah and it was it was like okay i need to start looking for writers who didn't <laughs> Who were still really, yeah. you know, committed to what they do and who were able to write really great stuff. And he was that. So, Well, again, it's, it's that certain advantage to, like, blowing your life apart as a younger man. I mean, Hemingway went trotting along, boozing and, you know, doing whatever the hell he did. And then it's just like, it can't just, wait, I have no tools for this slight weight. You know, it's like when he started to lose it and got depressed and tried to walk in front of a train, I mean, of a plane propeller. Yeah, right. After, yeah. you know, getting electroshock. It's like, you know, if you've had that great a life, you have no tools for failure. Right. But if you failed early, had everything you loved taken away, betrayed the people who loved you, and just lost it all, you know what? It's kind of a, it's like that, that Iggy Pop song. It's like some weird gift which sustains you. Well, it's amazing what, what you can uh, survive. Yeah, Selby being the... Archetypal. Yeah, I mean, he had what? He had like Example. like one and a half lungs. I, I mean, know. And he would tell this great story. Uh, you know, he still smoked for a yeah, while. Yeah. And he's like, you know, I had no lungs and I was on the ship and we were on leave and I had 15 minutes. But guess what? I found a way to run to the liquor store. <laughs> and that was a medical miracle. <laughs> you know, yeah, what's not to love? Yeah, you know? no, he was great. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, uh, you know, he used to come to class with his oxygen. You know, he had his oxygen at that point. Yeah. But he'd come in, you know, never uh, yeah, missed a class. Yeah, he showed up. He showed up every time. And, and you know, in a way, like for me, it, it's great working in Hollywood because, I mean, the rejection is ludicrous. The humiliation is just staggering. But... You, but you've had some successes. I mean, is it, yeah. still, is it still every time it's just like you never know what's going to happen? Whatever. You know, I've had successes. I just... Had a massive disappointment and over what? Yeah, just some Hollywood gig, you know. Yeah, it's Hollywood, man. Nobody will fuck you like your friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no names, please. <laughs> um, but it gives you a great perspective because you know when I get all fucking indignant and depressed, and I can't believe 
you know, I keep this picture of myself in my McDonald's uniform, like over my computer. It's like, really? Shut the fuck up. Man. Right. You're wearing your own clothes, you know, and they don't smell like grease. Right. You know, the rest is gravy. Well, um, Jerry, not that they serve gravy at McDonald's, but <laughs> metaphorically, <laughs> they want speaking. to. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Jerry, it's been fun. Uh, hearing about all this great interviewer. Thank you. Well, no, I appreciate you taking the time to come over and talk to me and, uh, I wish you all the best with that new baby and with all of your new work. You as well. Okay, folks, there you have it. That's the program. That is Jerry Stahl. Uh, what a wonderful guest, very funny guy, very gifted writer, uh, and just a good soul. Great to have him on the show. Go pick up some of his books, Permanent Midnight, I Fatty, Painkillers, etc. And be sure to check out Hemingway and Gellhorn, now playing on the HBO, if you're an HBO person. This show has a website. Don't forget, it's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. Come follow me over there. Uh, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, if you like this, if you're a fan of the program and you want to do something real quick to help the cause, please go over to iTunes and rate and review it. Give it a nice rating. Write a quick little review uh, or a lengthy one, whichever you choose. Uh, that really does help, and I'd be hugely appreciative. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to our sponsor, the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Uh, if you're working on a novel or a collection of short stories or a screenplay of some sort and you want some instruction... Uh, some discipline, some help, some, uh, some friendship among writers. Go sign up for a class you can attend right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the internet, uh, whatever you like. And there's no time like right now to get after it. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Uh, and you can also visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers. And you can check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, okay. So that's it. Uh, my daughter is actually throwing a fit right now, uh, out in the kitchen. I don't know if you can hear that. It's sort of faint, but it's there. She's crying. She's making noise. Uh, she's being unruly and I like it. Uh, and that's sort of the mood that I'm in right now. And that's probably the mood that I'm going to be in for a while. Anything she wants to do, uh, is fine with me. She can stay up late. She can eat ice cream. She can make a mess in the living room. She can spill things. So, you know, I'm tired, uh, I think, I'm emotionally drained, and uh, I appreciate you listening to all this. I hope it hasn't drained you. Uh, please remember that Albert Einstein was reading Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason at age 13, and that T.S. Eliot missed out on military service in World War I due to a hernia. I'll be back again soon. Uh, you know the drill. Another writer, another conversation, another rambling monologue, hopefully of the uh, non-depressing variety just for you. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, I'm going to go look at my child. I'm going to pick her up. I'm going to put her down. Uh, we're going to watch some Elmo and uh, possibly some SpongeBob, and we're going to eat some ice cream. So uh, that's a good thing to do. Don't forget to do that. It is very important. <laughs>